Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to our mothers or mothers-to-be out there. Uh, it is my privilege to be here this morning to, to be bringing God's word to you as Pastor Jim is celebrating with his family, so we remember them. Uh, but I'm excited. I'm excited because not just it's Mother's Day. It might be a little bit of a wet Mother's Day, but, but it is Mother's Day, and we, and we reflect on that. That video describes our feelings really well because we understand there's a multitude of different experiences out there when you talk about motherhood. And so, so often we get kind of caught up in the, the Hallmark card version of motherhood and, and we fail to see that there's some real pain going on in the lives around us. We understand that there's loss that's happened over this year or maybe in years past that people are dealing with. We understand that there's some struggles. There's some struggles for people who want a family desperately and haven't been able to have one yet. And so if you're a mother here this morning or if you're in one of those situations where you're feeling that pain, uh, just know that your church family loves you. And we appreciate mothers, all they do in the home, all they do in our society, all they do for our church here at Hillcrest, all they do in service to the Lord, and we're thankful to him uh, for the blessing of mothers. I think our passage today that we're going to look at, it might not be what you would call a typical Mother's Day sermon, all right? I'm not going to, you know, pick a a strong lady from the Bible and and do a biography for you. I'm not going to talk about, you know, all the things it means to be a mother. You don't want me telling you that. that. I'm not, that's not the person you want up here telling you how to be a good mother, But what I will be teaching about this morning from God's word is is the subject of contentment. The subject of contentment goes well with all that we've talked about because we understand from all these different experiences that people have, there's hurt, there's pain, there's joy, there's abundance. And in all those situations, if we learn the secret of contentment, then we'll be right in the will of God. I will warn you though that We'll look at a verse today that, that might be one of the most misunderstood or, or misapplied or ripped out of context verses in all of scripture. Uh, so if I kind of upset your apple cart this morning, just know that I'm doing it in love and I'm doing that because the spirit of God wants you to know the full power of that verse. It reminds me of, a, the, you know, those little inspirational calendars, you know, you get, you tear one off every day and it has a saying or a Bible verse or a quote. My family obviously knows I'm not that kind of person. They gave me the dad jokes version of that calendar, but the inspirational one, I saw this picture of, of a verse and uh, it you know, had pretty flowers on it and, and looked great. It said, in Luke chapter four, verse seven, it said, if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Man, that sounds like a great promise of God, doesn't it? That if we worship him, we can have it all. And so I started, well, maybe, the, maybe those prosperity gospel preachers that I've railed against all these years, maybe they were onto something. Until you take your Bible out and you flip over to Luke chapter four and you realize who actually said that, it was Satan as he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So perhaps not the best inspirational verse that we could take, but that illustrates the danger of ripping a verse out of context and making it a life verse that you can use for any circumstance. So with that in mind, we're gonna look at the book of Philippians this morning. We're gonna turn to chapter four. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and pull that out or or, or turn it on or there's a a pew Bible in the rack in front of you there. We're gonna turn to Philippians chapter four and we're gonna start with verse 10. Paul writes this to the church at Philippi. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your word this morning, your word you've given us to, to read, to study, to apply to our lives. So Father, I pray this morning as we do that, as we open your word, as we look at, at what you mean to teach us, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the words that come out of my mouth and your Holy Spirit would be the guide that leads us to wisdom and truth. Father, for the mothers here this morning, we are grateful and we are thankful. We pray especially for those who may be hurting. Father, give them your peace. Using the grace and the mercy that, that you abound in, Father, and that we don't deserve, we pray that you would comfort those that are here. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You notice that our world is, it's basically set up for discontent, right? Everything around us screams that you need something more, you should be something more. And so it's not just in, like in the old days when we had to worry about keeping up with the neighbors that were on each side of us. Now we've got to worry about keeping up with these online personas that we see on social media. We've got to worry about keeping up with the celebrity lifestyles that, are, that are, we're bombarded with. We can't help but know what's going on. Uh, and then we see these perfect images and advertisements of families or lifestyles that are just wonderful and, and we think, I need that, I need to have that. But in this world where we always want a little more, contentment is becoming less and less common. It's such a rare trait. So as I was preparing this sermon, I, I ran across this story told by David Jeremiah. He talks about a young man who was a, a pre-med student at Stanford University. He was a sophomore there and he was doing well. He'd worked hard all through high school to get good grades, got into Stanford, he's pre-med, he's doing well. His parents were so proud of him, they decided, you know what, we're gonna reward you this summer after your sophomore year, like any good California parent would do. We're gonna send you on a trip to the Far East. We're gonna fly you out there and you can experience you know, a different culture and different things and, and just enjoy your time out there. And so uh, the, the young man was excited, obviously, to, to experience all this. He, he packs his bags, loads the plane that summer, goes over to Japan, and while he's in Japan, he meets this guru. And this guru confronts him and he says, don't you know you're, you're poisoning your soul with your success-oriented way of life? He said, you think your, your idea of happiness is you stay up all night to study for an exam just so that you can do better on it than your friend. That's not how we're meant to live. He encouraged me, said, give all of it up. Give it up, come join us. We've got a community of people here, we live together, we share everything and we love each other and we want you to join us. The young man has obviously worked hard. He's had great ambition, he's had success. He sees the path that's in front of him if, if he stays going down that path. But what the, the guru says intrigues him. And so before you know it, he finds himself in a hotel room in Tokyo, phoning home to tell his wonderful parents, I've given up on Stanford University. I'm dropping out of school. I'm gonna stay here in Japan. And this is where I'm gonna find happiness. So as no doubt left his parents blindsided, obviously they, they never saw this coming. And so they waited for a while to hear from him, anxious to hear about his life in Japan. Six months later, they receive a letter from him. And in that letter, he says, Dear Mom and Dad, I know my decision to leave school was shocking to you, but please know that I see it as one of the greatest decisions I could have made. I've never been happier. For the first time in my life, I am at peace. This way of life is in so much harmony with the essence of my soul that in only six months, I've become the number two disciple in the community, and I think by June, I could be number one. <laughs> so you see, contentment can be elusive regardless of how far we go to try to find it. 
What if our environment is not the source of our discontent? And if contentment is actually something that we can attain, then what exactly is it? So in our text this morning, Paul's going to describe for us what contentment truly is, and he's going to do it in the context of what might be the strangest thank you note ever written. Because the letter to the Philippians, in this, this part in particular, he's thanking them for a gift that was brought to them uh, by Epaphroditus uh, while he's in prison in Rome. And if you remember, if you were with us when we went through the book of Acts recently, you'll remember that this was part of Paul's second missionary journey that he goes to, to Philippi. Uh, and originally, he's wanting to go somewhere else. God shuts that door. He wants to go somewhere else. God shuts that door, calls him to Macedonia. And his encounter here at Philippi is the first encounter that we read about Paul uh, reaching the people of Macedonia. <clears throat> Once he gets there, he meets Lydia, a prominent woman of the community, uh, a dyer of purple, they say. So she was a, a wealthy and prominent woman there. Uh, she's converted, invites Paul and his companions to come and to stay with her. And together they found the church at Philippi. But all doesn't go well there. If you remember the story, <clears throat> Paul is imprisoned, he's beaten. Because some of the locals find out what he's doing and, and he upsets the economic situation in Philippi. So as he's in jail with his companion Silas, you know the story there, they're singing and praying during the night and God miraculously delivers them. So we see the church at Philippi was actually founded in this, this dramatic situation. And we have further evidence that they continued to support Paul financially even after he left which would be in keeping with what we know about the area. It was an affluent area, and he was you know, staying in the house of one of the more prominent people in the city, and so they would have had the means to support Paul even as he went on uh, to different parts of his journey. But based on our passage today, we see that that support had stopped at some time. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances for why that may have happened. It, it could have been as simple as economic conditions in Philippi deteriorated, and they were unable to give. Uh, it could be that they basically just didn't know about Paul's condition or even his location, and so they couldn't pr continue to provide for him. Uh, but regardless, we find out that, that for a time, the support had ceased. But then Paul uses a, an interesting word when he says that they revived their concern for him. And that word revived, when we look at the Greek text, actually, it refers to a blossoming again. It's like a plant that's brought forth a new blossom. So it's not that something had died and gone away and then it had been revived. It was something that for a season had to cease, but now it's returned. And so he, he paints this beautiful picture about how they had continued to have concern for him and now the actual manifestation of that concern has, has blossomed again. He was not forgotten. He wanted to communicate to the people that he was grateful for their gift, but he also, he wanted to teach them that his gratitude wasn't just because they had met something that he was lacking. They hadn't provided something that he needed so much as he was thankful for their participation in the work of the Lord. So he saw the gift as being the result of God's faithfulness more so than their generosity. And that leads us to our first principle. If you've got your notes this morning uh, in your sermon guide, the first principle of Christian contentment that we'll look at this morning is that Christian contentment is a God-sufficient mindset. Paul rejoiced over the gift that had been given, but he makes a, a clear distinction when he says that he rejoiced in the Lord. And when he puts this phrase, in the Lord, in there, he's not just Christianizing his language, you know, like sometimes we'll do to sound a little more spiritual. We'll throw a little in the Lord here, uh, here and there to, to make it sound like we're, we're all spiritual. No, he's, he's being very specific drawing their attention to, to his rejoicing being in the Lord because he's indicating to them he's not just happy that he's received the gift to be more comfortable in prison. 
He knows that God is the one that's doing the providing. And what's even more than that, he knows that that God knows each of his needs and God is able to provide for each of his needs. So while their gift is appreciated and he shows them thanks, he doesn't want them to miss out on this important truth. He doesn't want them to think that, that it's up to them how he's gonna feel. They're not responsible for his condition. He is in God's hand, but he's grateful for the gift because he knows that means that they are participating in the work of the Lord. Another thing that we have to remember is that during this time uh, in, in history, we had a, a Greek philosophy called Stoicism that was, that was pretty popular. All of the people in Philippi would have known about it. They would have known some of the philosophers that were talking about this. And in Stoicism, self-sufficiency was essentially the highest of all virtues. If you could rely on yourself and be sufficient unto yourself, no matter what you had or what the circumstances were, that's how you know you've, you've achieved the pinnacle of the human experience. And so Paul kind of plays on this when he uses the, the word to be content. When he says he's learned to be content, that Greek word, it's only used here in the New Testament. Nowhere else in his writing does he use it. And it does have this strong association to Stoic philosophies. It has a, this meaning of self-sufficiency. So he's talking about self-sufficiency, alluding to it, but then he's gonna turn it completely on its head because he knows that self-sufficiency is never going to be possible. Jesus himself shot this idea down uh, when he speaks in the the gospel of John to his disciples. And he tells them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So there's no such thing as self-sufficiency. We can't be self-sufficient. Christ himself taught that. Paul himself had to live with a reminder of this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He writes about a thorn in the flesh. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Starting in verse eight, Paul says this. About his thorn in the flesh, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul clearly understood that that his contentment wouldn't come from what he could accomplish on his own, but rather from the power of Christ. So that's why later he would write to his young protege, Timothy, he would tell them, godliness with contentment is great gain. Peter also understood the value of this. He understood that God alone was sufficient when he wrote, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see, Peter no doubt remembered the time when Jesus was teaching on the earth. He walked with him in his earthly ministry, so we would have been there at the Sermon on the Mount. We have it recorded for us in Matthew chapter six, Jesus' own teaching on contentment. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we're going to look for one consistent refrain throughout the whole of Scripture, it's that God and God alone is the sufficient provider for his people. And that's true whether we're talking about our material needs or our spiritual needs, whether we're talking about the realities of this world or the emotions that we feel within it, God alone is the sufficient provider. 
The fact that he continues to teach this throughout scripture leads us to our second principle. That's that Christian contentment is learned. See, because contentment, it's not a natural human trait. And all you mothers out there could say amen to that. You've raised your children. You know that contentment is not something that, that babies are just born with and they're just happy all the time with whatever lot they have. No, kids start to complain. They complain about something as soon as they, as soon as they get up from the dinner table. They're hungry again. As soon as one show's over, they want the next show to come on. They, they always want a little something more. That's why we, we're so you know, surprised whenever we see a baby and like, that baby is so content. That's amazing because it's not natural. That's not the way that we naturally are. And so God goes to great lengths to, to teach us how to be content. And I don't know about you, but th- that fact actually gives me hope because I know that I haven't reached full Christian contentment in my life. There's still times where I long for that something more or I desire to see something happen and I, I get outside the will of God trying to force it. You see, I have to learn contentment just like Paul had to learn contentment, just like you have to learn contentment. Paul says it pretty clearly in verse 11. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And if that weren't enough, in verse 12, he goes a step further and he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now don't miss this, don't miss this. True Christian contentment is not some instantaneous gift that God gives us. It's, it's not as if when we receive salvation from the Lord, he immediately frees us from all discontent. I mean, sure, we have the knowledge that should free us from discontent, knowing that we have an all-powerful and sovereign Lord who knows our needs and will make sure that, that we have what we need to accomplish his will, but we don't learn it all at once. Paul didn't learn it once. I'm still learning it. I think everyone here can say the same. He says something else interesting in verse 12, though. He says, he doesn't just say that he's been through tough times or he's been through the good times. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Because simply going through something doesn't mean you know how to go through it well. Just because it's happened to you doesn't mean you've learned anything from it. You ever heard someone say this? They'd say, well, I'll be content if I can just get this one thing. Maybe if I could just reach this one position in the company, then I know I'll be happy. I'll be content at that point. If, well, if I just had this little extra pad in the bank account, then I'd be content. Now, ironically, that, that actually brings to mind a quote from a Stoic philosopher. Epictetus said, it is impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. And I think that's where a lot of us end up. We think we understand contentment. We think we know what it means to be happy, to be content. But if you ever hear somebody say, I'll be content when something happens or when I reach a certain point, well, you've gotten the first clue that they actually have no clue what contentment really is because they're describing the exact opposite of contentment, right? If contentment is contingent on me achieving a certain thing or reaching a certain point, that's not contentment at all. That leads us to our next principle. The true Christian contentment is independent of experience. Now let's not forget who's actually teaching us about contentment in this passage. It's the Apostle Paul. And by his own account, he'd experienced some terrible things throughout his ministry. We've read about most of them as we've gone through Acts and we read about them as he describes them in the letters that he writes to the churches. At the church in Corinth, he writes them this. He kind of lays out a list. He says, five times 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Sounds like a happy life, doesn't it? Right, in, in our picture, we look at that and we say, Paul, man, you, you must be going wrong somewhere. Like, you'd think after the first shipwreck, you would, you would change course a little bit, try a different plan. Maybe this isn't the way you're supposed to be going because you keep running into trouble. But keep in mind that Paul's actually giving this lesson to them. He's writing this letter to the Philippians as he's sitting in prison, in a Roman prison where he's not even sure he's ever gonna be let out. He writes to them at the beginning of the letter of Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But before we fall into the trap of just equating contentment with accepting trials, let me be clear that when I say Christian contentment is independent of experience, I'm also including the experience of plenty. Paul says it plainly. He says he's learned the secret of facing plenty as well as hunger, abundance as well as need. It's not enough that we learn how to be content when things are difficult. Now, it seems, it seems paradoxical that one has to learn contentment when circumstances are great. But let's take a moment right now. Take a moment right now and let's think of the person that you've come across in life that might be the least content. If you're like me, the, the people that pop into my mind typically aren't the ones with nothing. They're the ones with plenty. The people I've met in life who seem to be the least content, they're not the ones who are the poorest of this world scraping by. They're the ones who have what they need, but they want a little more. It's never enough. Learning contentment is just as difficult for the affluent as it is for the abased. And that goes back to our point that true Christian contentment is a God-sufficient mindset. You see, when things are, are going well, when we have wealth, when we have prosperity, that makes us often feel self-sufficient. It makes us feel like, okay, now the pressure's just on me to maintain the success that I've earned on my own. What happens in that case is our view of ourself becomes really elevated and our view of God becomes smaller and smaller. And you can't have a small view of God and attain true Christian contentment. So if we accept the fact that contentment is a God-sufficient mindset that can be learned and is independent of experience, how do we actually attain it? That's the final principle. Christian contentment is enabled by God's grace. And so now we come to the verse that we've had to deal with. I kind of left you on the cliffhanger for it. But Paul says in this verse that most of us can probably quote and half of us probably have on some piece of artwork in our house, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now taken by itself, it sounds like an absolute statement of power, that we can overcome anything that comes our way. And that's how it's most often used. 
But now that we see it within its context, I think we have to look at it a little bit differently. Now, no doubt it's still an incredible statement of power, but it's most certainly not a promise that we're able to change our present circumstances in order to succeed. Paul makes this statement as kind of a culmination of his teaching on commitment, on contentment. And so it can't possibly refer to bending circumstances to match our own will. The point of the verse is that regardless of our circumstances, we will be able to accomplish what the Lord has called us to do because of the strength that he alone gives us. See, the Greek word that, that's in there that, that we read as through, it really carries more of a connotation of in. We can do all things in Christ who gives us strength. It means that when we're acting within the will of God, his grace can provide us the strength to endure hardship or the strength to face whatever we may have to handle. I think you would agree that if we can define success then as being within the will of God and not accomplishing our own desires, then we've, we've reached a better definition of success. And it's based on that definition of success that this verse gives us a promise. The idea of us being in Christ, it speaks not only of our union with Christ, it speaks of us being within the will of Christ. It speaks to Christ's presence being within us. And if we want to have that contentment, we can't continue in some pattern of sin and expect to be content. When we live with sin in our life, when we accept it as part of our lifestyle, when we excuse it as something minor, when we ignore it as something to be dealt with later, then we're not walking in Christ. We're not walking in the will of God and that contentment that we so desperately seek will continue to elude us. So some people today may have to rethink their interpretation of I can do all things. And if, don't get me wrong, if this is your life verse, you know, if you've got it written on the bathroom mirror and look at it every day before you get up and face the day, I'm not asking you to forget it, I'm not asking you to throw it out. What I'm asking you to do is realize the immense power that's within that verse that we may have missed before. The power of that verse is that in context, it's not about us escaping something. It's not about us getting away from something that annoys us or something that brings us harm. It's a promise that we can be content within the will of God no matter our circumstances. And that's how we find hope, right? That's, that's true peace. That's not the only example we have from scripture of God's grace enabling us to be content. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, he gives us this instruction. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Our contentment is made possible because of God's promise to us, not because of our own strength or wisdom. And while learning contentment is a process, we're not left to just figure it out on our own. This is the promise that gives us hope. It's just like Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we have a hope for an eternal glorious reward. And that should give us perspective when we experience either want or wealth in this temporal world that's passing away. Many of you probably know about the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was a lady who nearly died in a Nazi prison 
And she was there because she was helping Jews avoid capture by the Nazis in her home country of the Netherlands. She summed it up with this very simple quote that that I've heard many times. She gives us this advice, hold everything loosely. Yes, we'll have things. God will grant us things in this world, but we hold them loosely. And when the things of this world are transient, what we hold tightly to are those things which are eternal. So our true Christian contentment, once we can attain it, it's of great value to us. It demonstrates that our hope is in the things that are eternal. Our faith is in a God who knows what we need and is powerful enough to provide it for us. And it's also a strong witness to a world that is not content. Those aren't the only reasons, though, that God wants us to learn Christian contentment. Paul gives us another reason in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He writes this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, our contentment should ultimately give us the ability to serve the Lord and do good works. It was certainly true in Paul's case. Right, you remember the situation he was in in Philippi? So he's sitting in this prison, his back bleeding from being beaten by rods. He's in stocks. He doesn't know if he's going to survive till the morning. And what's his response? Praising the Lord. Singing his praises and praying to him all night long in that jail. And through that experience, the prisoners that were there heard the witness of true Christian contentment. The Philippian jailer, who we know would come to Christ through this miraculous experience, he learned what can happen when someone has true Christian contentment. See, his testimony and God's deliverance led to a saving faith for not only the jailer, but his entire household. And this was instrumental in the formation of the church at Philippi and really instrumental in the spread of the gospel throughout that entire region. Remember, this is what launched the Macedonian campaign. This is what launched his ministry that he would go all the way down to Athens. When we fail to learn and to demonstrate Christian contentment, we do more than just impact our own attitude and enjoyment of life. We may be robbing others of the blessing of the good works God is calling us to do. So as we conclude this morning, I wanna consider the definition we've worked out. We've said this morning that Christian contentment is a God-sufficient mindset that is learned, independent of experience, and enabled by God's grace. Now, as we work this out in our own lives, we must recognize that contentment is, it's not just wearing rose-colored glasses. It's not calling things great when things are falling apart around us. And it's not a lack of ambition where we just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, I guess this is just my lot in life. And it's certainly not complacency where we don't even try to do something about what's around us or within us. Paul was an ambitious man, but you know, everything didn't work out the way he hoped. It's the whole reason he was in Philippi. He had hoped to go somewhere else entirely. And I guarantee you his plan wasn't to be in a a Philippian jail after having been beaten, but he'd learned a secret. He always came back around to accepting that the will of God was always far better than whatever his own desires were. That was the secret of his contentment. And that's what we need to learn in order to have true Christian contentment in a world filled with discontent.